Our text for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Here's the reading of God's Word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Amen. Stephen, do I need to hit record? Last week we started off 1 Corinthians kind of a a banner of the series called Life Under Grace. Life Under Grace. Um, What I mean by that is, is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It means good news, but it's more than just salvation by faith. Salvation by faith has been around for a long time. Salvation by faith was the same in the Old Testament. But something happened. Faith in what? The gospel is the good news that Christ came. That all the longing of a Messiah came. All the restitution for uh, the sin of man is paid by the atoning Passover lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. So the gospel becomes the New Testament uh, life under grace. Light in light of The gospel of Jesus. And the reason why that's an important distinction is because that is our life. Is now we see through a lens of Christ. What is life like now that we're in Christ? What is life like now that the law has been fulfilled in Christ? What is life like now that we are justified in Christ? What would our church look like? Our families? What is the ambition of our life? That was Paul's main thrust and and impetus on the letter to the Corinthians. And maybe a good way to distinguish it is if, you know, it's still under grace, but if you see the book of Romans, you really get the flavor of Paul as theologian. And in 1 Corinthians, you really get the flavor of Paul as pastor. Taking theology and applying it to the lives of the people. He's... He's rubbing it in their wounds. He's rubbing it in their trials. He's rubbing it in their sorrows. And as a pastor, he's saying, this is what life is like now in light of grace. And so in the text from today, what we get is there needs to be a lot of grace because in the Corinthian church there was division. 
There was division. In this early kind of fledgling body of believers, there had already come a spirit of division. No small thing. The text for today, excuse me, the sermon title for today is E Pluribus Unum. It's the, the Latin phrase that you'll see sort of on the great seal of the United States. Um, you see it on some of our coins. It's the Latin phrase for um, out of the many, one. Right? So it means out of the many, one. The, the founding fathers were, were sort of really worried. You can read this in a lot of their writings. They were really concerned with division. They, they sort of thought there's... How do we piece this thing together so as to not break it apart? It's not, it's not going to last very long unless we try really hard to sort of build some structure that keeps these people together. So when they're drafting the Constitution, there's, there's no mention of, of parties, even though political parties already existed. I wanted this to be a nation not divided into parties, but united in a, a spirit of democracy. And George Washington, as he established his cabinet, knew that Thomas Jefferson was, was kind of his most dynamic opponent, so he stuck him in his own cabinet so as to keep him on his own side. And... Um, Continental Congress, they, they asked for some sort of sign. What's some, some sort of sign or seal that we could present to represent our nation? And someone brought in this phrase, e pluribus unum. And it came with a little graphic, which we don't really use today, but it was a, a hand holding a, a bouquet of flowers. And in the bouquet, there was all these different flowers, but held together in one united hand, it became something different than just these isolated individual flowers. It became a, a bouquet, something beautiful, something useful. And even uh, this, funny, to mention my daughter, Delia, she looked up at a building the other day, and she said, that's the miracle flag, Dad. That's, she doesn't know it's American. She thinks I'm saying miracle flag. She said, that's the miracle flag. She sounds super patriotic. <clears throat> and uh, I said, do you, do you remember the pledge? She said, yeah. She started saying it. And then my ears, you know, it struck me that they wrote, what? What did they write? Indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, here's the thing. With that, they, they tried to kind of manufacture by putting in checks and balances and writing into the structure of our, uh, our Constitution and our laws uh, forced unity. And the point I'm trying to make here is that even an institution like, like our own, where it's a very present reality, we, we see division, we, we don't want it, we can see what problems it would cause, we try to bolt together uh, manufactured artificial unity by, by making us work together in, in such a way, but the church takes those stakes and elevates them exponentially, right? It takes the stakes of unity and elevates them exponentially. But it does it without bolting onto us commands. It says, from the heart, from the will, from the spirit, from a posture of humility, strive for unity. Strive for unity. This morning we're going to ask a few questions of the text <clears throat> to see what exactly was going on in the congregation and how it would apply to us. The three questions are these. Why is unity even important? Outside of just a generic, you know, we don't want conflict sense, what, 
Why is unity important? In the Christian church, why is unity important? Second question is this, what was causing their particular division? And lastly, what's at stake if we get this wrong? What happens if we don't heed the warning of this text? First question, why is unity important? I'm going to read a few texts. You guys can follow along with me. But this is much more than a sort of kumbaya, you know, let's just get along, sort of unity, don't make waves. We want church to be nice and quiet. We want a unity that glosses over real danger. Listen to this. We want a unity that glosses over real danger for the sake of artificial harmony. No. It's not what we want. Let's take a look at some of the references of the importance of unity from Scripture. How about this one? From the start of the church, the giving of Christ's Spirit. One of the first just gifts of Christ post-resurrection to the church. Listen to how it reads. Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and all came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to, to doctrine. Take a little bit about doctrine today. They were also devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to prayer. And in so, they were filled with awe at the gospel and life under grace. Friends, one of the themes from this morning, I'll go ahead and give it away, is just that the, the things that plague our churches or Christian lives or even personal lives tend to give, are, are given away in light of grace. The things of earth grow what? Strangely dim when Christ is held up before us. And that's what happened in, in, in Acts. Christ is exalted. Look, just across lines, there's just this beautiful sense of unity. And the Lord began to add to their number. The truth is, unity becomes a major part of our credibility in a lot of ways. When the outside world sees division, even if it's just amongst a local congregation, or see it in our conflicts of, of, of mouth and action individually, do they primarily see it individually and just as a congregation, or is it reflected of Christ? Truth is, no matter how you want to cut it, the more divisive we are in the church, even a local congregation like Corinth reflected poorly on their Savior. They're united. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity brought near to Christ and just a full of a congregation of, of quarreling. Psalm 133 says it this way, Now behold, how good and pleasant it is it when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That's a, that's a phrase we got to bring back. It's, that's, that's so good. It's like the oil on the beard of Aaron. Um, people will look at you like you guys are looking at me. 
Ephesians 4, listen to this. Listen how important. And I could go, I mean, honestly, references, I could go on and on. This is an eye-opening thing to me. I think of unity as sort of like, yes, we want that, but how critical is it? It, it is very critical to this sharp theologian Paul, right, as pastor. Unity is key. Listen to his letter to the Ephesians. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience. Brothers, bear with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the bond of peace in the spirit of unity. There is one blood. There is one spirit. Just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So here we have sort of a, a little bit of an inkling or a, a hint as to what's happening. Right? There's different gifts within the body. There's different strengths within the body. But to think that that makes us quarrelsome or divisive, is to reflect poorly on the one baptism, the one faith, the one spirit. Again, Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. One last reference. I appeal to you, brothers. This is Romans 16. Watch out for those who cause divisions. who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. There's a sense of avoiding quarrels with someone who teaches a contrary doctrine. It's kind of interesting because we're going to see later on. Well, I'll go ahead and read it. 1 Corinthians 11. For in the first place, when you come together in a church, this is verses 18 through 19, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in, the, in this order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Short version, doctrine does matter. But there needs to be unity. You need to have unity so that you know who are out of step with unity. They need to be out of step with doctrine. And what's the doctrine that we preach? It's not systematics. We're going to get into this a little bit today. It's not some banner of a theologian or some school of thought. Banner's Christ. Christ is not divided. There is one Lord, there is one gospel, and it cannot divide the congregation. I think the uh, question for us becomes, what's causing the Corinthian division? It's incredibly important that they have unity. So what's causing the division? Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 12, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, who don't really know who they are, that there's quarreling among you. And what I mean is this, that you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or the Apostle Peter, or I follow Christ. The underlying sin here, the thing that Paul's trying to get to, if you even notice the kind of construction of the language, it's that there are people in the church that are claiming, well, you well, yeah, we're all in church together, sure. Or yeah, we're Christians broadly throughout the nations. But me, I follow this guy. Or me, I follow this other guy. 
My doctrine, my credibility, my access to the inside track is better than yours. The primary sin here that caused their division is pride. And one of the most repeated phrases of Paul to the Corinthians is this phrase called puffed up. You've been puffed up. You've been puffed up. Puffed up with pride. So he gets in 1 Corinthians, you get this, this kind of list of spiritual gifts. He tells them in the early chapters of, uh, verses of chapter 1 that you guys have been blessed with all kinds of spiritual gifts. And he's, you know, he gets in this metaphor of the body. You got hands, and you got feet, and you got ears, you got eyes, and the head, and, and, and they're puffed up because of it. I mean, they have become stellar Christians, so much so that there becomes division among them. And they begin to take a little rest, not on Christ, on themselves. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Or how about this? We all know this one from chapter 13, the love chapter. So if we're to love one another as a congregation, if we're to exhibit love, if we're to give love to Christ, well, what does love do? Well, love does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's full of humility. The contrary to that is... How are you going to love a congregation? How are you going to love people? How are you going to love messed up sinners who come in to hear the gospel, okay, life under grace? How are you going to love your family if you're full of pride? That's not love. Whatever it is, it's not love. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Puffed up again can be found in chapter 4, verse 18, verse 19, chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 8, verse 1, and on you go. What is our posture before the Lord? Can it be, can our posture before the Lord be pride in anything? No. Posture before the Lord says we are to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. I want you to hear me clearly. Our, our salvation is worked out with fear and trembling, not because we are scared of God, if we don't get our theology right, he's going to drive his thumb into us, crush us. He's going to heap on us guilt. The fear and trembling comes from standing in the presence of Almighty God, holy, 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 which we just sang this morning, and being found in his presence, washed clean and given his favor, unmerited favor, unearned grace by his hand. Come to me if you're heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Fear and trembling. Who is this king of glory? Like I preached a few weeks ago. Who is this God that he would condescend to love us? Second, uh, second chapter of Philippians says that Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross, and he now deserves the name above every name. This, this hymn comes out of Philippians because he's looking and going, what do, we, what do we say in response to this? We worship. We cannot stand before God's presence and boast in anything. Our great learning, our great attendance at church, our great um, history of repentance of sin, you have nothing, friends. 
And that does not make you feel bad this morning. It just makes you, I hope, feel so much better because you have the perfect record of Christ. You have been loved in spite of all your efforts. You can kind of hear this line of thinking in the Pharisees' prayer. You know, I'm talking about Luke 18. It says, God, I'm so thankful that I am not like these other men. That's kind of what started happening in the Corinthian church. God, I'm so thankful that I'm, I'm one of, you know, I'm a Christian first, but, you know, I follow Apollos and that line of thinking. I'm in that school. I'm in that camp. I'm so thankful that I'm not of the Pauline camp. I'm so thankful that I don't follow Cephas and all that. You know, Cephas, was, he was weak, but Paulus, you know, man. You can, um, you can see this again in, in a great sermon I heard preached by this guy over here, Kadim, uh, John chapter 8. Uh, they begin wrestling with the Pharisees, and they're looking at Jesus and going, we have Abraham as our father. We follow Abraham. Jesus is, if you have Abraham as your father, you would follow me. I and the Father are one. So any, any attempt that we have to sort of, I'm standing on this platform with all of my weight. If I want to tiptoe over and start putting a little bit of weight, just half a shoe, on something else, right, and then try to boast in that? Oh, I'm really secure. I was standing on Christ, but look at me now. I got a couple, I got six, six toes over here on whatever philosophy or whatever on yourself. No way. You are infinitely less secure in that position. And how, could we, how could we possibly boast? I can hear this echo in, in, in the pride of our kind of circles. And by the way, why they would have followed one of those guys, I didn't mention, but you know, Paul established the church in Corinth. So you can kind of get that sense of, hey, I'm going to follow Paul. And he was the guy who built this thing. He was, the, he was the OG, the original guy. I'm following him. His doctrine was pure. And then first, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 18 says that Apollos came in after Paul and he was a man of great eloquent speech. And you can kind of see the temptation in that camp to say, well, Hey, Alec, I'm following Christ, but I really like that eloquent theology, you know, and I, I, that's the real deal. And you guys, uh, you have people who say, well, I follow Peter. I don't follow any of those guys. Peter was one of the 12, right? He's the rock. I follow Peter. You guys even said, look, I follow Jesus as if to like put him in a different category. I'm, no, it, it, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one gospel. I can hear it a little bit in our own hearts. I can hear it, I can feel it in my own flesh. I can, I can feel that we might say, look, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Calvinist. I follow John Knox. Maybe our pride's not in a theologian or a camp. It's, yeah, I go to church, you know, there's Christians out there, but I'm really well read. I read a lot. I actually know theology, doctrine, read some systematics before. You said this tendency to divide up into groups. Maybe you feel like, I can understand difficult doctrines. Our church practices the liturgy. You know, not like those heathens with the fog machine. True as that might be. <clears throat> but the Corinthians were not merely divided into groups. They were, they were boastful of their own talents. Like we read this morning in Sunday school, we can kind of hear that temptation. If this goes on too far, if this goes down a road too much, which it shouldn't go any, shouldn't rest on anything, you can hear that story come alive. 
that Jesus heard. He says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Wasn't I baptized into Paul? Wasn't I into Apollos? Wasn't I into this crowd in this camp? He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. That is of critical importance. Let me, let me read this to you before I move on. It's a fairly large block of text, but it's, it's the best sermon. It's from Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. So this is, I'm setting this up to say, like, how, how could you boast? Paul takes all this boasting away from us. You were one time Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, friends, and covenant of grace, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down, listen to this, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's a vast difference between being discerning theologically an error, which is not really the topic this morning because Paul does plenty of that. In fact, the whole rest of the book is him correcting errors. Don't, don't make a mistake that I'm just talking about nice unity. Paul makes great efforts to correct doctrine in order to shift us back into the true unity of Christ, to get the gospel right. And there is in a congregation a big difference between someone who's discerning of doctrine and someone who's just a cynic, pessimistic, prideful, contrarian. Paul begins to ask this question. <clears throat> he aims first at the Paulites, right? Or the, whatever you might call them. It's like, okay, you guys, you guys are boasting and following me. Well, this is what he says in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is Paul crucified for you? Right? I love that. Did I die for you? No way. Are you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for these handful of people that he mentions. Paul's glad that he didn't baptize them as if to say they had no grounds for boasting. One, in that he was not kind of creating schism or some kind of camp for himself, pulling over. Hey, guys, you want to get baptized by me, an apostle, you guys come and get in line. He's not doing that. And he's not able to say to many people in the Corinthian church, you were baptized. I didn't baptize a lot of you, and I'm so thankful that I didn't, so that you can kind of claim some, some sacrament that you were baptized into my name. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And you, and you can kind of see this, Paul, elsewhere in multiple places says, if, if anybody has the right to boast in the flesh, who was it? It was him. But he considers all that filthy rags for the sake of knowing Christ. Okay, that's the spirit. Paul's got the spirit of this thing right. Anything that we want to lean on, even a toe off of the gospel, to just begin to feel a little bit more fleshed out, a little bit more stable, you can't. 
Brothers, that's not the unity of the gospel. And in fact, I mean, you can look at history. Do we have factions in, in Christianity? Yes. Do we have factions that needed to happen? Yes. Do we have factions in the, in, the, in the Bible? Yes. But do we have f- fractures in local congregations that are mostly just over sin? Absolutely. We're not called to come in here and listen to a lecture. We're called to be the church. We're called to be the church. Corinthians is going to get on. We're going to get to this message, but he does get to that point where he uses this metaphor. Look, can an eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? Because you're less than me. You, 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 do, you perform some lesser function. You don't know as many books as me. You're not as the same theologians as me. Can, can any of us do that in this room? Can any of us stand on our laurels and look around at the kids or the other families in this congregation who might not be as well-versed in things as we are, but we are one in Christ? Can we boast and say we don't have any need for them? By no means. So it brings up the question, what's the stake if we get this wrong? What's at stake if we get this wrong? Last verse, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul's not there to baptize. So that's like a a sort of a a sacramentalism. That'd be more of a tendency of the Catholic Church, right? Just come here and get baptized. That's going to be your sufficiency. That's going to be where you stand and kind of get washed and renewed. You can kind of lean on these rites. Look, I'm not coming here to do that just to administer rights. And secondly, I'm not just here to preach with eloquent wisdom, which would probably be a temptation more for a Protestant camp, right? We like good preaching. And what we'll get to next week, which is a great encouragement to myself, is that Paul says, look, I'm not a great preacher. I'm not eloquent. I'm, if you're coming here to hear poetry and just get your ears tickled, that, that's not me. That's Apollos, but he's not even doing it, you know, in the flesh. He's just good at it. The truth is we don't come with wisdom. In fact, good preaching is just the truth. It's not always rhetorically great. Good preaching is the truth delivered faithfully to you. We want to hear the gospel. The gospel is not a trick. That's, these are the stakes. These are the stakes in what's getting this right. The gospel is not a trick. It's not dependent on me getting the logic really tight and making sure you go, oh, okay, now I get it. So that your faith is just on some domino chain of logic that you logic your way into the kingdom. It's not on the sharp words of a rhetorician who makes you feel something good today so that you trust in Christ because you just like the loungy feel of a philosophy club. It's not the idea of a philosopher. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the truth. Preach the truth. And anything that comes in, like we're promised over and over in Scripture, to divide that truth, to make us lean, whether it's on a theologian or a camp, or even an apostle like Peter himself, probably most quickly would be to lean on ourself and our own understanding and our own reading and our own theology and our own podcast and our own whatever is to begin to taint the gospel because it would strip the cross of its power. What's the power of the cross? What is it? 
It's because this thing that looks like foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. Where we hold Christ up, he draws all men to himself. It's God on display. This paradox of thinking, this upside-down world that we can't even make sense of, and he delivers us faith by his grace, not by our logic, and not just by tickling our ears, but by his mercy and by his grace. The gospel thunders in the soul not because it's artificially seasoned. The thunders because the, the bell tone strikes a ring of reality in the hearts of those who hear and see Christ's testimony. And as grateful as I am for faithful men and articulate teachers, a couple of things for today, a couple of applications, is to not attach myself too closely to men. Paul says, in this vein of thinking, be imitators of me, but only as I am an imitator of who? Christ. As we follow faithful men, faithful teachers, we are imitators of them as they imitate Christ. Second thing we can learn is not to look down on others who are, who are learning or whose gifting is different than ours. Like I referenced, does the, does the hand have the ability to say, because I'm not an eye, I don't need you? No, not at all. In fact, that was our reading today that Craig did from Romans 12. We have this diversity of, of giftings. Cause us to worship, glorify God uniquely as a local congregation. And the last thing is, is do not find any security. Do not find any extra rest in any of your own gifts or any of your own thinking. If Christ is insufficient for your rest, if Christ is an insufficient place for you to stand, in your life and for hope in eternity, <clears throat> then there needs to be a call to repent and to see the Savior for who he is. Not as someone who needs a little assistance or help by us. It feels good to, to, to try to hold on to the grass, but it is, it's, it's quicksilver. It's, it's holding on to the wind. And you will find that you let yourself down and the hold that you have on a theologian or a book or a study or a way of thinking or a philosophy or a camp is not the gospel. As gospel-centered as it may seem, we have one testimony, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Two readings I want to do for you as we conclude. This one from Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it you may become defiled. And then lastly, I want you to hear Jesus' prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer from John 17. This is right before he goes to the cross, and he's, he's asking the Father, this is what I want you to do for the church. I have been faithful in all that you have, you have told me to do and to say, and this is, what I, this, is, this is an amazing thing. You're listening to Jesus pray. This is what Jesus sounds like before the throne room of God, okay? This is the types of things that he's saying. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may be articulate and reformed. No. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's pray to God for unity in our church. Not just a nebulous feeling of harmony, but for a clarity on what the gospel is and for a humility amongst the body, and a rejoicing in each other's giftings, and a resting in Christ's work, uniting us together, one in the Father, us with Him and Him with the Father. What a travesty to have the gospel of the peace of Christ and the harmony of the Trinity and have it displayed in the division of the church. God have mercy on us, let's pray.